Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast, bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury. My pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer with Made Tech. So it's Tuesday, the 4th of May, 2021, and I have Esther Derby here with me. Hello, Esther. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is our live launch party episode. And we've never done a live episode before, so bear with us. <laughs> uh, why is it a launch party now? Well, because to be honest, three weeks ago, we were too busy launching to organise a party. I actually have a bottle of fizz in the fridge downstairs <laughs> to celebrate the launch. I'm not opening it until I've stopped needing to make sense, though. <laughs> Okay, so for made tech, improving software delivery is often as much about people and their behavior as it is about technology. And systems thinking is where the two come together. And this is where Esther Derby really excels. So I'm delighted she's agreed to be here with us today to talk about people and patterns. And Esther, I'm just going to very quickly do a really short bio for you. So Esther is the author of Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change. She's the co-author of Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management. She's also the co-author of Agile Retrospectives. And she's got four decades of experience of leading, observing and living organisational change. So hello again, Esther, because I said hello and then I said a load of stuff. <laughs> I'm going to start with the same question that I always start with. Who in this industry are you inspired by? That varies from day to day because various people do very inspiring things. I mean, I think in terms of purely tech, I'm inspired by G. Paw Hill and Ron Jeffries and Jessica Kerr, name a few. Fantastic. We actually did interview Jessica yeah. and I do have both uh, Ron Jeffries and G. Paul Hill on my uh, list of people I would like to interview. So hopefully we will also get to them. Okay, so when I've seen you talking about people and patterns, you often reference systems thinking. So let's start with that. What does systems thinking mean to you? Well, I mean, there are systems where you can take everything apart and put everything back together. And then there are systems that are the product of the interaction of all the parts, you know, complex adaptive systems. And I tend to live more in the space of complex adaptive systems. So systems where the interactions create something that may be not predictable from the component parts of it, mm. like any system with humans in it. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about systems thinking, does that just literally mean thinking about complex adaptive systems? Well, I think a lot of people associate it with Peter Senge. And I tend to associate it more with complexity thinking and looking more, you know, being more inspired by natural systems in the way I think about it. Mm. So I actually work with the human and structural parts of it. So I'm not so much looking at the systems of code, although they often reflect the human and structural systems that give rise to them. Yeah. So I suppose there's two ways of thinking about it. So you could be thinking of a system as representing an organization, for instance, like a business, or you could be talking about a system as being people and the needs that they have and the way that they interact with software in order to fulfill those needs or get things done. So it's the interactions of people with software in order to achieve a particular purpose. 
Well, that's certainly part of it, but there's always the, you know, the part, the whole and the greater whole. So there's the way people are interacting with software, but there's also the way people are interacting with the policies of an organization and the way people are interacting with the reward systems of an organization or the way people are separated into departments and relationships. These are all things for people who are in an organization that are contributing to patterns of interactions and patterns of results. And all of that could be described as complex adaptive systems. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the complex adaptive bit. Yeah. What do we mean by complex and what do we mean by adaptive? In complex systems, there is seldom direct causality. Things are massively intertwined and they interact with each other and they affect each other. And every change creates some sort of little change in the environment. So just like in a forest system, if you plant a new type of um, plant community, it will subtly affect that environment. It may hold more moisture, it may create a little shade, which shifts the environment. Mm. So yeah, constantly adapting, Mm -hmm. constantly responding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's something that people don't necessarily take account of is the way that in organizations, uh, in teams and the way and when we interact with software, we are all changed by those interactions. And so sure. you can't take an organization or a team and describe it as a static thing that always stays the same. Although people would love for that to be true mm-hmm. in many cases. I mean, if you think about the the kind of mental model that many people have of an organization, it's very mechanistic, Mm. which is static and unchanging. And you just, you know, you turn the crank and it produces a certain kind of result. Um, So I think, I think we have that in our legacy as sort of a mental model. And that leads to people desiring something that is very predictable, unchanging. Yeah. And then they also want adaptation when they want it, but not when they don't. Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah. It came up actually when I was talking to Jessica Kerr, you mentioned before, we were talking about teams and learning and she used a lovely phrase, which is that one of the things that, that happens constantly within teams is that we're constantly producing the next versions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really like that, that, that way of thinking about it. Okay, so what we're talking about today is people and patterns. And we've touched on systems thinking and uh, I actually, I, I read an article by you about people and patterns. And one of the things that I was really struck by was um, three bits of terminology that you introduced, containers, differences, and exchanges. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling us a bit about what they are? Sure. Those terms come from Glenda Oyang's work in human systems dynamics. And they reflect factors that are present in any system, any human system, and containers tend to hold focus. Mm -hmm. So you could think of this interview as a container. You know, it's holding our focus right now. But I'm also in a room, which is a container. You could think about my state, which has some cultural differences from other parts of the country as a sort of container. So they can be physical, they can be psychological, they can be organizational, you know, so they just, they tend to hold focus. Okay. And differences can exist within a container, and they can be a source of creativity or a source of conflict. Yeah. Right. And they're neither good nor bad, right? They just, they are. Okay. Yeah. 
you know, and, and exchanges are meaningful transfers of knowledge, information, affiliation, you know, affection, money, all, you know, whatever transfers between people within a container or between containers. Mm. And it's a very, very interesting way to look at organizations. I mean, often when I'm seeing something puzzling, that gives me some clues as to what's going on. If I just sketch out some of the containers and some of the differences in them, that can often help me understand why people are behaving in the way they are. And you see it a lot in teams that are, you know, in various different locations, right? So people like on the org chart, they're this nice little box that says team. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at it from a container perspective, they may have, you know, the container of one location, the container of another, a container of a third, a reporting relationship that encompasses two of them as another container. Um, time zones can function as a container because they kind of focus the rhythm of your life. Mm. And if you look at it from that perspective, you know, the team container, which only exists in that little box on the org chart, isn't strong enough to counteract the pull of these other different containers. Okay. You know, location, time zone, language, culture, past affiliation, all of those things. So very often when someone says, well, we, this team just isn't acting like a team, I'll sketch out the containers and say, well, you know, there's a lot of things pulling them apart, what's pulling them together? Because when you show all the containers, it very often is just crystal clear why the pattern is what the pattern is. Yeah. Okay. So the context of this is that, you know, in the work that you do is that you might get called into an organization who I guess they might present you with something very concrete, like they might be saying, we never deliver our software on time or we're having trouble managing our budgets or something. And then what you're going to do is try to analyze the containers differences and exchanges you can see within that organization to help them to find out why they might have problems. So it depends on the kind of problem. If it's teams or groups that aren't getting along very well or aren't functioning very well, I may look at that. But if their cycle time is too long, I'm probably not going to start with containers differences exchanges. I might look at the value stream. I might look at what are all the factors that contribute to their cycle time being so long. Okay. But it, you have to have the right tool for the issue. And if you mm. only have one, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck. So a friend of mine, we, well, actually, we were both working at the same client at the same time. And they had something like 40 teams spread across the Middle East and Europe and India and the West Coast and the East Coast of the U.S., and he just drew a big old container diagram that showed, you know, where all the teams were located. And then they were overlaid with that, what they were supposed to be working on together. And he just left that picture up and managers would come in and look at it and say, what's that? And he'd explain, you know, well, you know, these, this team that's in India is working with this team on the West Coast and this other team, and they're supposed to deliver together, blah, blah, blah. Didn't tell people what to do. But over time, they started shifting so that, oh, teams were only two time zones apart, right, that were expected to deliver together. Mm. So it can, it can explain certain patterns of behavior. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my first place to talk about budgeting issues, probably. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that you describe containers, I'm instantly picturing in my mind a Venn diagram because it it feels as though, you know, the idea of circles and shapes Mm -hmm. overlapping so that you can see some people belong to different sets of containers and that there are different intersections. Yeah, that's a reasonable analogy for it. Yeah. So can you give an example, uh, just kind of sticking with the containers theme, Mm -hmm. can you give an example of either a real or or a a typical type of problem that you might think, okay, yeah, what I want to do at this point is draw a container diagram? When there are issues in patterns of interaction is when I would probably use that. Yeah. So another, another example was a group where this team just wasn't getting along and it was like, what can possibly be going wrong here? And I just, I just drew a little diagram, which it started out being just, here's the floor layout. You know, so here's like eight of the people on the team in a team room. And here's one person around the corner and down the hall. So right there, they've got you know, a fractured container. Mm. And then I started looking at the differences on top of it, which was all of the guys in the team were were men and the person sitting down the hall was a woman and they were all in a a computer science background and she had a different background and they were in their 30s and she was close to 50. The differences and the containers kind of lined up to amplify that difference. Mm. And so she was just not you know, integrated into the team in any reasonable way for a whole bunch of reasons that were amplified by the way the containers existed and the way they didn't have a chance to really get to know each other as Mm. people, right? Because they were separate. So it's interesting because in that example, um, the differences that you describe are clearly causing issues, you know, that there's that, that, that there's one group of people who are all quite closely aligned and then mm-hmm. there's one other person who's effectively just right on the edges of things and there are a series of differences that cause that to happen. And in that case, the differences seem like they're effectively negative. But I was really interested earlier when you said difference doesn't have to be negative. You oh, know, no. dis- difference can be a, a good thing, diversity and creativity. Well, it could have been in that case too because mm. she had a, a wealth of business knowledge and experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that difference could have been amplified to great benefit for everybody. That was actually going to be my question. Are there times where you can kind of take differences, acknowledge a negative impact that they're having, but turn that on its head and turn it into a positive by recognizing the value of diversity? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so here's another example of differences. So When I was a dev manager, I had a team that was part contractors and part employees. Mm -hmm. And I went to great lengths to dampen that difference because I don't believe you can have a team with two classes of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I treated everybody pretty much the same and that dampened that difference. However, we got a menu from on high one day saying that contractors could no longer be in certain kinds of meetings, that you couldn't give contractors feedback, and that if there was a little birthday celebration or some other sort of celebration where the cake was paid for out of company petty cash, the contractors could not have cake. (laughs) Which amplifies the difference. Of course. Right? It says you are a second-class person here. Yeah. No cake for you. (laughs) No cake for you. And, of course, I ignored most of those. 
<laughs> Good for you. Because I was more interested in having a functioning team. So I think that's a really clear example of where, you know, you can amplify that difference and you'll get one pattern of behavior mm-hmm. where you'll get people who, you know, may not be as engaged. They may not be interested in learning stuff, whatever. They're just writing their code and going home. If you amplify the difference, but if you dampen the difference, then you get a more cohesive group. Um, you're more likely to have everybody learning. Yeah. And you're more likely to have everybody engaged in solving the problems. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to pause there. I have to confess, I am childishly excited by the fact that I've actually managed to introduce music into a live podcast episode. But anyway, uh, while I've got your attention, I want to tell you a little bit about Made Tech. So after 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. And so the reason I am working for Made Tech, there are many reasons. So we are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively in the public sector, that is to say not for profit. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I just really love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people and their passion to make a difference and the way that they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech. That's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have some free books available at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we are currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office, all of which are in the UK. Uh, You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. Okay, so we were talking about containers. We were talking about differences. Yes. And something that we... I, but I have, a, I have a question for you. Yes. Because you just mentioned, what, five containers? You have London, Bristol, um, South Wales, Manchester. Was it four or five that you mentioned? It was four, but I talked about the north of England via our Manchester office. Okay. So that made it sound like five. Okay, so there you have four containers. Mm-hmm. And a fifth one being the overall company. Mm. So how do you keep coherence across those different containers? Well, and that is a great question. And what's really interesting is that the fact that for the past 12 months, we have been all working remotely has actually made that easier in the global sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of MedTech having one single identity and, and, and working cohesively across the boundaries of those regional containers, that's been a lot easier. So the big challenge has actually been, how do we maintain some kind of regional identity? And you might even ask, why do we want to? Um, but there is definitely research about what makes a good size of team. Mm-hmm. And when you have larger numbers of people I think we are somewhere between 150 and 200 people. I have lost track because we're growing quite fast Mm -hmm. across the whole country. But within the offices, they're much smaller groups of people. And it's easier in a smaller group of people to have some sense of identity and and belonging and to then work effectively together because you feel some allegiance and closeness Mm -hmm. and you can build those relationships as well. So the challenge has been to have those regional identities and to encourage people to spend time with each other 
on a regional basis. Mm -hmm. And something that I've noticed about lockdown is persuading people to spend time with each other in order to bond and build trust is hard because whatever you do, it involves sitting in front of a computer. Yeah. And rather than saying, now we can leave this building and go to the pub. If we if we want people to spend time together, we have to make them sit in front of their computers again. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's been quite a challenge. I don't know if you've had any experience of, of that. Yeah, sure. This whole the whole issue of containers now that we're remote is, you know, as you said, in some ways easier because the regional thing isn't so salient anymore. Mm -hmm. But what I have seen happen and, you know, what I have fostered in many cases is setting up virtual communities, not necessarily around work, but around something people care about, mm. you know, so a hobby, like the people who smoke meat or the people who brew beer or the people who knit or the people who quilt, you know, whatever it is, but just have some sanctioned internal community that allows um, people to knit across those boundaries. Mm. That's a really good point. You're looking at trying to knit within a container, mm -hmm. right? So you have that regional identity. And, and so if there's something you could think about that would be a regional project, you know, maybe it's a volunteer regional project or, you know, something that allows people to form around that that isn't necessarily work, that might help. Yeah. Did you just say smoke meat? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I have friends who smoke meat. What? That's like thought, their hobby. I thought you were getting confused between people who smoke and people who eat meat. People who smoke meat? What? <laughs> and they smoke meat and then they eat it. Wow. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, you mean like uh, like a barbecue, like put it in like a smokehouse? Yeah. You, you, don't mean, you don't mean roll it up into a cigarette? No, not, not like that. <laughs> yeah. They have like these amazing smokers with like all these temperature sensors and they very carefully follow the temperature of the meat and there's a certain point where you have to do this. Yeah, it's, fa it's fancy. Wow. Okay. That's impressive. And, and it tastes really great. Mm. Unfortunately, none of my friends who smoke meat live close to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know anybody who smokes meat either, but I can't get it out of my head now, the idea of somebody rolling it up into a cigarette and, <laughs> and then eating it. Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. That's gross. No, don't do that. Okay, so one of the things that I know that you're really interested in, which is related to this whole thing of containers and exchanges and differences, mm. is identifying patterns. Mm -hmm. So how do you identify patterns in systems? Well, so first I'll talk about what I mean by a pattern, and that's some event that has meaning that reoccurs over time or over space. So sometimes you can observe them. Sometimes you look at data. Data is, is a big place to find that kind of stuff. I mean, because we're all bombarded with events all the time. Mm -hmm. And that sort of modeling allows us to get a, a broader temporal view of mm. what's going on mm -hmm. or a broader spatial view because we may see what's going on with, within our own team or our own department, but we may not realize that this pattern replicates across yes. many teams. Yeah. What's interesting about patterns 
is that when you say that, you say, okay, so I, I might be helping an organization to identify how they might be able to improve and, and what is the source of any problems that, that, that they are complaining about. And I'm going to look for patterns. And it sounds obvious. It's one of those things you say it and you think, well, of course you're going to look for, why wouldn't you look for patterns? And yet it often takes an external observer such as yourself to come in and, and find those patterns. Oh, sure. Is that because the organizations themselves are not looking for patterns or is it because there are going to be so many patterns? Is it about not being able to see the wood for trees, identifying the most important patterns? Well, uh, yes, all of the above. So now I'm going to have to tell you a story because I have a million stories. I love stories. Tell me a story. <laughs> <laughs> so years and years ago, when we still lived in Minneapolis, um, one random weekend, it was a U.S. holiday, our refrigerator just died. So we rushed around to get a new refrigerator, and my husband's friend was helping him move the refrigerator in. And he brought his kid with him, you know, like a four-year-old. And so my job was to kind of keep the kid entertained while they dealt with the refrigerator. My office at the time was right off the kitchen, mm -hmm. and it had a door to the kitchen, and they somehow got the refrigerator wedged in the door, and just at that moment, the kid said, I need to use the potty. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at this four-year-old and I'm looking at the window and calculating the distance to the ground and wondering if I can like lower him out the window mm -hmm. and then run around and bring him back in the other door and get him to the potty in time. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks around and says, why are we thinking about the window? There's a door right there. <laughs> and there was. Yeah. But... It was a door to the living room, and I got tired of people coming into my office that way, so I blocked it off with a bookcase. So to me, its function as a door was completely gone. But to this little kid who you know didn't have that kind of um, history and that hadn't become inured to it, it was obviously a door. And this same thing happens in organizations all the time. Mm. You know, we just become so used to seeing something or not seeing something that we lose all consciousness of it. Mm. So, you know, I think it's very easy for people not to see patterns. And people are, like I said, bombarded with events all the time. I mean, people, the pace of things happening is so intense in most organizations that people don't have time to step back and think. And sometimes they just don't recognize that a pattern is of significance. Like one organization I worked in, the, the very first day I was there, one of the senior vice presidents said, because he was upset that teams were not meeting their sprint commitments, he said, why aren't these teams accountable? So I just started asking different questions and say, well, who was in the room when the team committed to that? Oh, well, the team wasn't there. It was the program manager, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so I just asked different questions and, it, you know, tested a bunch of hypotheses. And eventually we figured out that the test environment was really an issue and it was not very available. You had to wait in line for it. And so the teams would take in a lot of extra work because they knew they were going to get stuck sooner or later. And they didn't want to be slackers. They wanted to be working on something meaningful. Yes. So they took in all this stuff, which meant they didn't finish all this other stuff. But it, it actually masked the real problem, right? Because as long as people were saying, why aren't they accountable? They were just focusing on the people mm -hmm. rather than on the system, right? And people are easy to see and blame and systems are harder to see. Yeah. Because we're taught to focus on people. 
Yeah. Okay. So I saw a talk that you did on the topic of people and patterns, and you mentioned blame a few times, and uh, you talked about how how common it is for mm -hmm. people to get in a situation where they will see problems and they will blame people for them rather than taking a step back and mm -hmm. seeing patterns. Is that a really common thing, do you think? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, people are easy to see and patterns are harder to see. But I think business is just in some ways sort of wired towards blame. You know, we have all of these promises that are made without necessarily a great understanding of the actual capacity of the organization. Mm -hmm. And then when the developers, often that's the case, can't meet the promise that was made by someone who didn't understand the capacity of the organization, Rather than say, oh, oops, we uh, we overpromised. We better figure out how not to make these wild promises that we can't meet anymore. You know, the blame gets pointed at the other person. Mm. And I think, it, you know, essentially in some ways that's that happens when people feel afraid and vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my bonus. I'm afraid I'm going to not meet my target. I might get fired. So in some ways, people try to protect themselves by, by projecting the issue onto someone else. Mm. And it very often comes from fear. Yeah. And that in itself can be a pattern, can't it? If sure. you see within an organization that several different individuals are being blamed for the same thing. So they keep complaining in the example you gave, why are all of our people so bad at accountability? And if you see a pattern that you keep finding people apparently being blamed for the same thing, then, well, hang on a minute. Yeah. Is it really those individuals that are the problem or is there something systemic that's, that's causing yeah. this to appear to be a problem? And something else that you just mentioned, it's something I've heard you talk about before, is how people are better at understanding spatial data than temporal data. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, that's that's partly why I draw so many diagrams when I'm working with people. I just sketch stuff for them, you know, and I don't say, oh, I'm doing a container diagram. Or I just start sketching stuff because, you know, that makes it much easier for people to, one, see the pattern, see what might be going on. But it also means it's no longer, you know, I'm trying to convince you of something or we're, you know, at odds about something. It's like this thing is out there in front of us and we're both working on it. I also use that term in a different sense in terms of spatial being my part of the organization versus a distant part of the organization mm -hmm. or now time versus what happened in the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I love diagrams. I think making things visual, allowing people to see something is incredibly powerful. Well, it also it also externalizes it. It says this is a problem that's outside of us that we can work with. Mm. And I think that can that can diffuse a whole level of defensiveness. Mm. So you're pointing at a diagram rather than a person. Yeah. 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 And and you can be shoulder to shoulder looking at it. Usually, especially, you know, if you can have it up on a wall, you're shoulder to shoulder looking at it. Yeah. OK, so time is marching on. Uh, so I'm going to move to the questions that I always ask every guest at the end. And hopefully you've had a bit of time to think about this. I'm going to ask you, if you can, to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue. And don't tell me which is which. I roller skated backstage at a Patti Smith concert. Oh, that's brilliant. And I dye my hair. Okay. How do you think I get this perfect white color? It is a wonderful color. It looks like bleach to me. 
Okay, so I mean, you're just going to have to tell me about roller skating backstage at a Patti Smith concert. This sounds like a, a good story if it happened. You don't think that's the lie? Well, I <laughs> see, the thing is that most people, if they told me they'd roller skated backstage at a Patti Smith concert, I would say, no, you didn't. But <laughs> Esther, somehow, I feel like this is something you could have done. So did, was it just because you just happened to be on roller skates because that was your preferred <laughs> footwear at the time? <laughs> I don't actually remember why I had my roller skates with me, but um, <laughs> I was backstage at a Patti Smith concert. I knew somebody who knew somebody. I knew somebody who was a friend of Patti Smith. Okay. Um, to end on a high, what is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It can be either work-related or non-work-related. In the last month or so? Can I go back a little further? Yeah. I got vaccinated against the coronavirus. Ah. So that is the best thing that's happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Have yeah. you had both doses? Yeah. Wonderful. That is very good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, where can people find you? Esther at EstherDerby.com. That's my email. My website is EstherDerby.com. I'm on Twitter at EstherDerby. I'm on LinkedIn at EstherDerby. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I have a YouTube channel. Wow. You search on Esther Derby, you'll find two of us. Uh, it'll be obvious which one is me. <laughs> okay. And uh, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Well, I do a series of webinars every three months. I send out a different series of webinars on topics of interest to people who work with other humans. So you can find those on my website and sign up for them. Fantastic. They're informal, 45 minutes and then a Q&A. And they're a great way to interact with folks and share some stuff that helps with working with humans. Brilliant. Thank you so much for speaking to me. And thank you for joining our live podcast experiment. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. It was a pleasure to talk to you. As always, I'm going to summarise what you've just heard to help you digest it. And I have to confess, this is the one bit that wasn't recorded live. That would have been slightly beyond me. So systems thinking is all about complex adaptive systems. That is systems where the interactions create something that you can't predict purely from knowing about the component parts. So any system with humans in it. Esther's interested in the way people interact with organisation policies and reward systems and how they're separated into departments and relationships. People tend to have static, mechanistic mental models of organisations that don't take account of the change that's inherent in complex adaptive systems. One interesting way to look at organisations is to think about containers, differences and exchanges, which are concepts that come from Glenda Yoang's work on human systems dynamics. Containers hold focus. They can be physical, psychological or organisational. They can exert pull on other containers and have a strong impact on them. Differences happen within and between containers and can be positive, but can also be problematic. Sometimes differences can prevent people from knitting across boundaries. And one way of countering this is to encourage communities to form around common interests, like smoking meat. Exchanges are meaningful transfers between people within a container or between containers. And it can help to see what's going on in an organisation to sketch out the containers, the differences and the exchanges. 
Being aware of these concepts can also help you to identify patterns of interactions or results, where a pattern is an event that has meaning and recurs over time or space. Often it can take an external observer or a new perspective to observe patterns. And to identify patterns, gathering data is key. Once you do identify patterns, this can help you to help organisations to avoid blame, which often comes when people feel afraid or vulnerable. In all of this, there's a strong value of using diagrams to represent what you see. And you don't have to be too prescriptive about what those diagrams are. You can simply start sketching stuff out because people tend to find spatial data easier to pass than time-based data. Okay, so it's time for story time. Every other episode, I tell a story. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, for creating a sense of connection and trust in teams. And I love telling stories. So I love telling stories to both children and adults. Uh, I'm a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling. And I've been using stories in the podcast to illustrate various points about effective software development or sometimes effective teamwork. Okay, so 10 years ago, I was a high school maths teacher and I did my teaching practice in a school in Oldham, um, kind of northeast of Manchester. Uh, there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of challenging behavior from the children. But I wasn't exhausted and disillusioned yet at that point. I was still energetic, full of ideas. And in one of my classes, I had a Chinese pupil who was new to the country and didn't speak very much English. And if you can try and imagine what that might feel like, that would be a very overwhelming experience. You're spending a lot of time in lessons where you don't understand your fellow children. You don't understand everything the teachers are saying to you. It was difficult for him. I also had a friend and fellow student teacher, Xiao Chen, who was also Chinese, and she was also feeling the impact. Her English was very good. She'd been in England for quite a long time, but still the children didn't always understand her and teaching is all about communication. So she was having a sometimes difficult time as well. And both of them, my friend and my pupil, spoke Mandarin. And I was thinking, what can I do to help my pupil? And I was thinking about empathy. I was thinking, is there anything I can do to teach the children what it feels like to be their fellow pupil and to teach them about seeing things from somebody else's point of view? And then, oh, my God, I realized the answer was right in front of me. I mean, I was a little bit worried, but I spoke to the school principal and the head of department and my mentor, and they were all excited, too. I spoke to the pupil. He was on board with it. I spoke to Xiao Chen. She was well excited. Okay, so what was the plan? Well, it was all about empathy. It was about what does it feel like to be surrounded by a foreign language all day? And what I decided to do was bring Xiao Chen into the school. She wasn't actually doing her teaching practice at this school, but everybody agreed that I could bring her in to teach a whole maths lesson in Chinese. Now, the thing is, um, maths is a universal language. So we had a big advantage that we were teaching maths and not English. Because it's a universal language, it wasn't difficult for us to find a topic that it would work. So we chose a topic with lots of diagrams, which was circle theorems. We also put a lot of effort into making sure that it was a safe environment. So we spoke very closely with the pupil, made sure that he was absolutely on board with it and that we could make sure that he had, you know, he had get out clauses. He could let us know if, he, if it wasn't safe for him, if he wasn't enjoying it. And what we did was we gave them all a crib sheet, which I actually have stuck to the wall in my study as a, as a memento because I, I was so 
keen on all of this, but um, it's a little crib sheet and there are about 15 phrases on it that we thought we would use during the lesson with their translations using the Chinese symbols. And nobody was allowed to speak a word of English. They all had to um, use the diagrams, use the crib sheet that they were given and find other ways of communicating. So it was a little bit worrying. It was a little bit nerve wracking when we finally got to the day of the lesson. And I had quite a crowd at the back of the classroom as well. I had the head teacher and my mentor and the head of department, a bunch of other teachers who'd just come along for the show. I was quite scared. I was worried. What if the kids had no idea what was going on? What if they didn't play along? And the thing about kids is when they're bored and when they're frustrated, that's when their behaviour starts to deteriorate. And I was really quite worried that they might poke fun, that they might not, you know, engage with it. And also as a result that it would be distressing for the Chinese pupil. And out of all the languages we might have done this in, Chinese is probably one of the languages that is furthest from English. I certainly am not able to even guess at what somebody is saying when they're speaking in Chinese, whereas with a lot of other languages I can because there are similarities and connections. And I've got such a clear memory of Xiao Chen standing at the front of the classroom. I did not have the faintest clue what she was saying except that I did because of the diagrams that she'd drawn and because of the pointing and because of her intonation. And then not long after the lesson had started, she asked a question of the whole class in Chinese and the class were silent. And I was, this was, this was the crunch point. This was, oh no, what's going to happen now? And nothing happened. And I was quite worried. And then one hand went up and then another, and then another. And like about 10 children put their hands up and were able to answer the question that she'd asked by pointing. Uh, I, I, it, was, it was absolutely wonderful. And the whole lesson went on well from there. The kids loved it. I loved it. The school leadership loved it. The Chinese people loved it. Xiao Chen loved it. It was it was wonderful. But what did we learn? And I think I think there's quite a few things that you can learn from that. I think one of them is that creativity captures imaginations, that if you can think of different ways of approaching problems, that it, it can really make a difference and allowing people to be creative, not always doing things the same way. And that empathy is clearly important, but sometimes it requires demonstration for people to actually know what it feels like, to actually try and create a, a situation where they can feel it. And that it's always worth paying attention to people who might be excluded and thinking about how you can bring those people in. And when people are different, find ways for them to take control and celebrate those differences rather than trying to eradicate the differences. Celebrate diversity because it's wonderful to see other ways of experiencing things. So before we go, um, because we specialise in working with the not-for-profit sector in made tech, we really care about making the world a better place. So in every podcast episode, I just come up with or ask people for short suggestions of how we can make life better. And today I'm going to use another one from this book that I've used a couple of times before. It's called Change the World for a Fiver. And it was recommended to me by uh, my colleague, Adam Friday. And this one says, spend time with someone from a different generation. There's two people side by side 
One of them is older and one of them is younger. And the older person has on their T-shirt, talk to young people. They know cool stuff you don't. And the young person has on their T-shirt, talk to old people. They know cool stuff you don't. So I just, I like that one. I think it's a really nice little thing. Remember to spend time with people of different generations. Okay, so we've reached the end of another episode. I've got a few talks coming up that I'm doing. If you look at my events page on my Medium blog, which is linked to from my Twitter profile, all the details are there. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There is no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery with an E-R-Y at the end. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet. Two. That's making and then tech is T-E-C-H and then the first bit of bet because Twitter wouldn't give us the handle we wanted. So B-E-T-T and then just a number two on the end. Come and say hello, give us feedback, give us contributions, give us suggestions for making life better or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose, who is our editor and will be editing this episode, but hopefully there will be slightly less work this time than there has been on previous ones, because most of what I wanted to say, I have said. Um, Thank you also to Kat Arnie, who runs First Create the Media and is the host of the very successful Genetics Unzipped podcast. When we started making this podcast, none of us had ever made a podcast before. And her expertise and advice has been absolutely invaluable. I'll put a link in the description for the episode. Thanks also to Richard Murray, who made the music. Oh, I might have forgotten some of No, it's OK. There's more music coming. <laughs> uh, also in the description, there'll be a link to subscribe to our newsletter. We're making new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening. And good. hang on a minute. Let me say that again. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>